Your brain is the hardware of your soul. It is the hardware of your very essence as a human being. You cannot be who you really want to be unless your brain works right. How your brain works determines how happy you are, how effective you feel, and how well you interact with others. Your brain patterns help you or hurts you with your marriage, parenting skills, work, and religious beliefs, along with your experiences of pleasure and pain. If you're anxious, depressed, obsessive, compulsive, prone to anger, or easily distracted, you probably believe these problems are all in your head. In other words, you believe your problem is purely physiological or psychological. However, research that Dr. Amen, the writer of this and others have done, shows that the problems are related to the physiology of the human brain. And the good news is that we have proof that you can change that physiology and you can fix what's wrong for many problems. It's timely. It's insightful. It's motivating. It's empowering. It's time with Fred, your inspirational broadcast with host Fred Gaddy. So thanks for tuning in to the Time with Fred podcast. This is a podcast that challenges paradigms and mindsets that hold us back. With me to discuss this very important topic is Dr. Jay Faber. Dr. Faber is a clinical and forensic psychiatrist with more than two decades of experience in child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry and pharmacological management, treating patients in clinical private practices in Colorado, California, and Georgia. Currently, he is on the medical staff at the Amen Clinics in Costa Mesa, California. He's also a member of the American Medical Association, American Psychiatric Association, and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Dr. Faber, thanks for coming on the Time with Fred podcast today. Thank you, Fred, for having me. Pleasure is all mine. So Dr. Faber, one of the things that really got me interested um, in this book was, was the title. I mean, we've learned and, and heard about some of the functions of the brain and, and what it can do. But uh, you wrote a book, uh, the title of the book is Escape, Rehab Your Brain to Stay Out of the Legal System. And that's really what piqued my interest. So why, why such a title, Dr. Faber? Well, I mean, I got all sorts of suggestions and I thought if there was a title that would uh, provoke curiosity, the word escape uh, would certainly do it. Uh, it has certainly received positive connotations, but also not so positive connotations, which is okay. The big key is the second half about rehabbing your brain. Yeah, I mean, I can see how provocative that, that would be, um, which might draw, draw some of the pundits, but it was very interesting. I mean, reading reading uh, your uh, the excerpts from your book, I haven't read the whole thing, I must admit, but you start by talking about Tesla, and they kind of relate that to the human brain. Why is the brain such a powerful organ of the body? Well, I mean, when you look at the, the trillions of cells that are in, in the brain and how they coordinate and create harmony, rhythm, and unity throughout our body, it's it's a pretty amazing feat when you look at how our heart rate, our blood pressure, our pulse to uh, what we eat, how much we eat, uh, how fast our muscles move or don't move. It all begins with a, uh, you know, an area that's not very large, but creates a great deal of significant functioning uh, for life. Mm -hmm. So how we think, breathe, decide, feel. Yeah. And it's all our brain. Yeah. Yeah, impacts our jobs, impacts our relationships, impacts impacts a lot of things, right, to a very significant degree. But 
why why this particular um uh, connection to the legal system yeah i think that's a fair question um one this is the first book i've you know formally written and i thought well who would be a great group to reach out to um, that wouldn't necessarily be able to afford getting the care their brain really deserves and i thought um, what better group than the people who've had legal problems. I mean, let's face the facts, 85% of jails or prisons have substance abuse problems. There's seven times higher likelihood of traumatic brain injuries. Uh, and yet we, from my perspective, don't rehabilitate the brain as well as rehabilitate other parts of the body. So um, that's why I wrote it. The book can be purchased on Amazon but it can also be downloaded free at my website, which is really the way I set up from the beginning is the people who need it the most. I wanted them to have it for free. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why, I mean, I, I found, I found it really interesting because oftentimes, you know, you think about people who've been in and out of jail, uh, there's so much focus on the, the behavioral or the moral aspects, right. Um, of what they've done, but very exactly. rarely do we hear or do we see, that connection or that attempt to figure out if there's anything um, wrong with the brains. And you, you mentioned a few um, of the bad guys, right, that, that we've known in American history, really in the world, like Ted Bundy, Bunny and Clyde, and you write that it's, it's not necessarily that these are bad guys, right? I mean, you make the argument that it's, it's, it's because they're the bad brains that lead or the bad brains lead to, lead to bad behavior. Can you expand on that a little bit for us, Dr. Faber? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, just you, if I could use Dr. Amen's words, verbiage, yeah. um, they're a lot of times they're not bad people. They just have bad brains that lead to bad decisions. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier, Fred, about just the brain and, and research and knowledge. I mean, the brain's just really starting to catch up. Um, when you look at the heart, the stomach, the kidney, we've had all sorts of different interesting diagnostic tests. Um, that have been available for years. And now we're finally coming up with non-invasive or less invasive techniques to look at the brain, uh, understand how it coordinates uh, different uh, circuitry together to make higher constructive choices and what happens when we don't. And so would it not make sense to take that information and apply it to a system, particularly in this country where the the number of people we have in jails and prisons, or prisons, it's, it's, it's huge. It's extremely high. So, um, you know, it's kind of the what if question, you know, what if we were able to come up with a system that we're able to cut down our um, prison uh, sentences or people in prisons by half? Um, what would that do to our economy? What would yeah. that do to our GDP? Yeah. And most importantly, what would it happen all these people if they really truly had a change not just a single change but yeah. a real change yeah yeah how successful has um uh neuroscience uh been in um kind of mitigating um the stuff you've, you've been in the you work in this field right i mean under um how, how successful or how challenging has it been one for professionals like yourselves and also for the individuals who I, I would imagine would have to accept, right, or come to that place of recognition, knowing that there is something internally um, wrong here that, that we need to address. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what's going on right now legally, um, neuroimaging was not really even utilized 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now it's getting to a place where 
it's used not to say someone's guilty or innocent, but it's used to help um, mitigate sentencing. So rather than saying, you know, this is your fourth DUI, you're going to jail for the next year. It's like, this is your fourth DUI. Here's your brain scan. Your basal ganglia frontal lobes aren't working very well. You need to responsibly start taking care of them. And rather than spending 12 months in a, a small prison cell, we'll let you go to a good substance abuse program instead where you're going to dedicate the time, effort, and energy to rehabilitate your brain to get better. Um, some people will mistake the book initially as sort of a you know, bleeding heart, caring person that just wants to give people a break. And mm -hmm. um, as much as I wish that was possible, um, healing takes time. I mean, yeah. if you break your leg, your femur, it's going to take six months for the cast on. Mm -hmm. um, your brain's going to take probably six months if maybe not even longer to get mm -hmm. rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. And you have to take the steps after you know what's wrong to fix it. Yeah. And I'm sure you've you've seen um, evidence of this, and I'm I'm sure you know you're you know there, there are facts that that back um, you know a lot of your arguments. In your book, you 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 write a story about Eric, um, if you recall, who uh, who found himself constantly um, in and out of jail um, on the wrong yep. side of law, and um, you know temper tantrums, fights, and how he was able to transform his life right by by this very same uh, process. Do you. You share a little bit about Eric's story um, and, and how successful you were able to get him to come out of that situation uh, by just changing the brain. Yeah, I mean, it sounds sort of like um, the, the way maybe the story in the book makes it sounds a little bit more of a fairy tale than it is. But he came in, he didn't want help, he didn't want to get better. Um, the only way he knew to help himself feel better was to use a lot of marijuana and other substances that would calm him. And uh, one is convincing them, hey, there's other things that are safe and that aren't even medications that we can use to get you to be more relaxed. Um, so let's give him a try. And he would try them something and they'd work, but then he'd go back and say, well, maybe this didn't work as well as something else I've tried. And so, you know, like anyone in life, you, you kind of go through this sort of yo-yo effect where people get better, then they go down and they get better, then they go down. Um, so there was a lot of phone calls between he, uh, particularly his mother and myself. Um, so it was a fight, um, you know, a good fight though. It wasn't like a fight where you're uh, screaming and yelling. It's more of a fight. Well, you know, this is not going to win. You know, you've got a choice here. Either you take the supplements and stay away from people who are using, or you're going to go to a place where you're not going to have anything to take anyhow. And you're going to be around people, you probably aren't going to want to spend time. And they'd be arguing and fighting and part of it's just being patient, but most importantly, just persistent. And having a relational style that promotes um, motivation and a word we don't like these days very much, but accountability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing, Dr. Faber, I couldn't agree with you more on that one. If there's one thing that you didn't mince words um, with in the book was the fact that this is not an easy process. It's not a, it's not a one and done. It takes a lot of ownership and like you rightly said, accountability. And I'd imagine this, this, you know, I guess can be, can be applied in, in every, every aspect of life, really. Nothing good comes easy, right? We don't try this once and say, because it doesn't work, you know, we we'll give up. So I think that's really where, where the challenge is. Now, would it, would it be fair to favor in, in making the case that there has to be, 
one, that desire, strong desire on the part of the individual to put in the amount of work it takes to get themselves to that position. And how does one find that motivation? I mean, in my work as a, I'm not a doctor, but I, I realize motivation, like you rightly said, you know, it's almost sounds like a cliche these days, but we, we all need some level of motivation, right? I mean, to whatever degree we need, it depends on the individual, but how does one get to the point like Eric, who would have to overcome that in the inertia, right? That cynicism, whatever, you know, opinions of others and experiences and, and to keep committing to something that they truly want and desire out of life. I mean, do, do, you, do, you, do you find yourself doing a lot of that coaching and doing that motivation as well in addition to the healing process? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, this is where life hits. And it's, as a physician, we learn about, you know, symptoms. So depression, anxiety, anger, irritability, you know, focus, energy, you know, a motivation. I mean, I can use all sorts of scientific jargon, but the bottom line is this, is people are people and they've got hearts and they've got feelings and they've got a life. And somehow you as a physician have to engage with them at the level they're at to make a difference. So for me to use a lot of scientific jargon and um, textbook words, it don't work. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't work. And I'll be quite frank. I've read a lot of second one look books. I love them. But the two big areas, there's something called motivational interviewing, which is more scientific. But I think just as important are some of the business books. Um, Crucial Accountability by Patterson yeah. and Al. Yeah. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the better books on helping people, you know, change their, their destructive behaviors. And so it's a combination to me of using great and incredibly powerful scientific research, but then secondarily going to some of the best leadership material you can find and, and utilizing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Leader, we stay calm and, and we try to stay more calm or have more composure, but simultaneously we're much more um, resilient to the waves of the, of the negativity we're going to get. Yeah. Um, and you can help them get through it by you staying calm. Yeah. One of the staggering statistics um, that you share uh, in your book is that uh, more than half of people who are incarcerated find themselves, unfortunately, back um, in, that, in that same situation. Why is that? Well, I mean, there's a couple ways to answer that. I mean, one is just watch a lot of movies when people get out of prison. You know, they open up the fence, they let you out, and where's your friends? Where's the bus? Where's the tram? You know, there's, there's not much anything there. And so you're left on your own by yourself to figure out how to do life where you may have been in a system for the last five, 15, 20 years. Um, they don't know what to do. You know, they don't know where to go. They don't know how to get a job. They don't know where they're going to get money. And so what happens? People go back to old ways to either get cash or make life work. Um, and unfortunately for half of them, they make the wrong choices that get them into further trouble. Yeah. I think some of them too, it's just that they're so used to the system, they'd rather be back in there than, than deal with what's ever going on in the real world. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I'd make the argument, Dr. Faber, for you know, someone who comes out and wanders you know, that, that, that record, um, that, that blemish, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes it's, it's hard to find jobs. There's, there's that societal stigma 
Um, and so I think, I'm not sure that society does a better job in helping assimilate these folks back into the system, right? And so if someone's out and, you know, maybe try a couple of times, can get a job and society labels them, you know, ex-convicts and, and whatever, when, doesn't that make it a lot more easier for them to go back and, and kind of give up on life altogether? Is there, is there anything that we can do? And this may not be a question that I expect you to, to solve, but this is really something for us all, right? To kind well, of, it's a good question. Welcome yeah. to the internet. I mean, it's like a background check, you know, yeah. pay $20 and in five minutes, you'll have a background check of every misdemeanor felony within 15 minutes in every state in the country, you know? And if you're hiring somebody, and you see something on the record, I mean, it's almost like a knee-jerk reflex, you know, reflex. You're just going to say, well, I've got five of the candidates. Do I really want this? You know, probably not. Well, in essence, that person, depending on who he is and his character, he might have, you know, nine of the ten attributes that would make you really successful at that particular company. So we got to get better. I think, you know, reputation management um, would be huge to help these people out, having somebody on their side that would serve as a liaison to get them back into the community would be extremely important. Um, and then if there's some concerns, you know, you're at a job and, and the, the manager or the person in charge has concerns to talk to the liaison, you know, and say, hey, let's try to make this a win-win situation um, before we, we cut this person out. I think that would be really helpful yeah. um, as well. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more there. I think as a society, we, we have, um, and I'd say we collectively, right? We, we all have a part of play. Um, uh, there is a, um, you talk about trust, right? Trust on the part of the, the ex-convict. Um, trusting, trusting someone or, or putting the trust in someone to kind of help them along the way. But I'd be the first to argue that it's, it's not often easy, right? Because the very same people they are looking to trust are, we, let's look at, you know, what's happening right now, right? Which we probably don't want to go, you know, into so much detail about. But I, I'd argue that there's really not that much trust, right? I mean, it goes without saying, there's really not a lot of trust in the, in the social and the legal justice system right now, right? So, so how does such a person, and again, it's not a question that I expect you to find, have the answers to, but this is really just to help us all, you know, start thinking about how to kind of help, you know, make this, make this a lot easier, right? In the absence of that trust, how do, you, how do you navigate that? The big key word I think right now, and you're going to see it more and more, is yeah. adult secure attachments. Uh, and there's lots of information coming out about it. Um, and and we, we haven't really thought about it, but it makes so much sense. It's, it's one, there was initially a lot of work done with, with babies and you'd see how they kind of connect with their mother. You know, some mothers were like, you know, trusting and loving, you get a secure attachment. And then other mothers were more anxious. The kids get anxious. Other uh, mothers were detached and the kids get more avoidant. It's like, okay, you know, interesting. Well, now we're starting to say, well, when you go through that pattern of relating for the next 15 to 20 years of your life, how to, and what does that do to your ability to connect with people mm -hmm. on a day-by-day -day basis? And, and here's the reality. And, and, and this is where the research is great. It's, it's, I don't like the way the numbers are, but 50% of people in this country grew up with secure attachments, which basically means you had an adult figure, somebody 
who you trusted and they added value to you. And what ends up happening is these people, they get back with secure people, attachment, and they both mutually add value to the other. The relationships grow. It's powerful. Yeah. It's huge. If you look at data coming out, who's successful, who does well, couples wise, the ones that have both secure attachments, it's huge. Now, unfortunately, there's this other 50%, and I frankly think it's even probably higher, where people either want to survive growing up because of the family, they had to detach, okay? They don't get close to people, they keep their distance, um, they stay away, and then there's another half that gets really anxious. They freak out when somebody doesn't like them. They, they get concerned that if somebody says something, they don't do like they want to do. So what happens? You get somebody who's a detached individual, and I'm making this story up. You can go all sorts of different ways with this, who I'm independent. You got a problem. We got a problem. It's not my problem. It's your problem. I don't have a conflict. Stay away. What's wrong with you? Why are you doing this to me? And then the anxious person, what do they do? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And so they end up you know, um, trying to placate, calm the person, which in a lot of cases is if the detached person's doing drugs, well, guess what the anxious person does? Because they want to feel like they're part of the situation. They do the same thing. Now, the problem is this, is when you look at people who are in the system, and there's not studies, but I'm willing to bet that probably 90%, if not higher, are either anxious, they grew up having anxious attachments, or detached attachments, and no one's ever taught them how to deal things differently. Mm -hmm. And somehow, some way, we got to get in there and help teach and show them that yes, there are ways to have secure attachments uh, with people. Um, I'll give you a case in point. I got a foundation, uh, Faber Ryan Youth Foundation. I reach out to inner city kids in LA that are inter in, that are in the entertainment, but in terms of leadership skills, they just they never got trained, and so. If you think I'm going to go in there and start talking about dream building, goal setting, purpose, tenacity, no, 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 you got to connect and they got to trust. Them. Yeah. Reach them where they trust are. Yeah. Where yeah. they're at. And it's like, so how do you do, you know, then it gets, well, how do you do that? And it's like, you know, three of them last year, I just told somebody this story about a month ago. Um, you, you want to give them like, wow, experiences, things that they might not necessarily ever think's possible and then connect with them. So um, last year I took three to the Beverly Hilton to the Academy Awards, red carpet in it. And um, these are inner city kids. You know, they sing, they rap, and you get them inside. Now one of the girls who, who came with me, um, I had to go, you know, you go through, the, I had to go through red carpet, you know, get interviewed, people ask all sorts of questions about the foundation. I had. Uh, this gal, we'll just call her Sandy, that's not a real name, who I said, just stay here, and then we're going to go to the next room. Okay, so she stood there, you know, cameras, the glitz, the glam, it's the whole thing. She's excited, having a great time. Well, to just backtrack, two weeks before that, um, I met some of the, the kids for lunch at a Mexican restaurant, and they didn't show except for Sandy, and she was telling me as a singer about some producer who she got in this crazy relationship with and he was very manipulative and she got kind of sucked in and so I probably heard more than I thought I was going to hear but we talked a lot about secure attachments she talked about the song she was writing about being genuine and being yourself not catering to other people so back to the academy awards I had to go to another room to get interviewed and I said Sandy come on up here with me and so Sandy came up with me and uh, the person's interviewing me when I'm talking and 
I told him about the foundation. I said, you know, I could talk about it, but ask Sandy what she's thought of it. And all of a sudden, Sandy says, well, she goes, I'm having a great time. In fact, I just wrote the song about being genuine, being myself, being real. And I'm hoping to get out in the market. And it's like, she's scared to death. Mm. She's scared to death up there, but she's loving mm. every mm. second of it. Every second of it. So long story short, she goes through it. I said, I got to go to another room. I come back a half hour later. I go, where's Sandy? And all of a sudden, now she's up by herself mm. on the red carpet. But my point is, this is what we've got to start yes. doing. doing. Yeah. We got to connect. We've got to engage. And we've got to help people start to believe that there's things out there they never dreamed they could possibly do. And secure attachments, adding value is a real powerful way that you have to yeah. start doing it. Absolutely. I mean, connection, and I, and I applaud you. Um, I, I, and thank you for saying that to kind of, you know, Exhort, but but this is this is huge, um, Dr. Faber. I mean, it takes it takes one, right? And I think that's really where the trust in humanity, the trust, that faith in humanity. Um, like, there's all that you know, the challenge of implicit bias. You know, we look at people and we kind of write them off because of whatever. His, but I, I can't I can't even imagine the amount of uh, positive impact or effect you had uh, on, on on Sandy, right? But 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 to your point, we all have to get out of our comfort zones and. And start being willing to give uh, to, to give people a, a second chance, right? And I think that's really where the, the challenge is, right? It's all about proximity. Yeah. Get close. Yeah. You know, yeah. get close, and boy, you'll. It's amazing how much you learn by getting close to situations. Yeah. The, you you you're the, the the other part of it, uh, Dr. Faber, that you talk about is is the challenge of dealing with. Um, the many socioeconomic issues that uh, some of these individuals face, right? You know, jobs and you know, family background, and and I think that underscores the importance of that this is this is really not the fate had it. I mean, I, there are so many others other Sandys out there who may not be fortunate enough to come into people and to come into contact with with people like you, right? And I think that's really where that self motivation, right, or drive, if you will, comes in. So for someone who is probably listening the podcast who you know i need help i don't have the right people i can't even trust the system is there is there anything they can do by by themselves on their own um to overcome to overcome this challenge it is a big one yeah no i think there's one yes i think there's a bunch you could do um two what would i if someone asked me what i would do um this would be my recommendation um is one and this is probably the hardest, stay away from the TV. Um, the TV is going to teach you a lot about distrust and paranoia. And then two, get a hold of books or tapes or TED broadcasts that talk about particular subjects that really hit your heart. I mean, secure attachments. Um, go get the book attached by Levine and Heller. Read it. You can do a test in the first, like, two chapters and you'll find out what type of attachment style you've got. And you can use that from your heart to start to develop your heart, not just your brain, but your whole being into something bigger, better, brighter, and more fantastic. Um, you work with John Maskell. I've been to John's house. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, 30, this is 25 years ago. And I walked through his house and he showed us this room 
and he had this big cabinet and he pulled it out. He says, if I want something on goal setting, here's where I go. This is where um, I keep everything since age 20 on goal setting, every conference, every seminar. And I'm thinking to myself, I was 42 at the time. What Lord's name have I been doing the last 20 years of my life? This is insane. Now back up now, that's 20 years ago for me. It's like, I need to get my butt in here. So I've started reading you know, every morning, read journal, read journal, read journal. I've got probably 1200 pages of quotes. Um, I've got a right-hand journal, left-hand journal that's been saved for the last 15 years. Um, not that, that's not the big deal. The big deal is, oh my gosh, this is really a lot different than the things I learned in my, for lack of better words, dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. And this is a lot different than I'm learning on TV. Mm-hmm. And so my point is this, is if someone really wants to take it to another level, they just got to expose themselves yeah. to higher thinking. Um, and that's practical. and fits where they're at. Yeah. Um, I met two kids, gosh, this was about a month ago. And I said, tell me about high school. These are inner city LA kids. And they said, it was a waste of time. I go, really? Why do you say that? It's like for my math class. I go, I didn't learn math at all. And now I'm kicking myself. This kid was 20 years old. And I said, well, why are you kicking yourself? Because I don't even know how to do a checkbook. Hmm. I'm just sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. I go, why wouldn't a school take higher math skills and then use what I call direct approaches, yeah. translatable approaches Make it applicable. to say, yeah. here's why you need to know these things. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard. Um, and I'm not saying all the schools are terrible because I don't know that all I'm saying is for this kid and his experience, um, I wish there would have been something yeah. Yeah. better for him. Yeah. But then, then, not, but then my, mind, my mind starts thinking, well, what can I do? How can I help this kid yeah. do something? You know, yeah. Maybe we make a three-part series and let him be the star on how to do a checkbook, you know, maybe how to set up a credit card, Um, you know, and then if people sign up, then they can pay him, not me, put a course online, you know, and then they get excited. You know, that's the kind of stuff I think we got to do to help people get to their next level. Absolutely. I agree. And and I want us to, you know, make some time to go through uh, the five life skills that you write about in your book, Escape. We may not be able to go through all those very extensively, but, you write about the five life skills, right? I mean, the first one, um, create a daily schedule. I mean, yeah, you hear that, create a schedule. How important is it that you just talk us through, you know, that you know, we're going to go through all these five before before we end. So really high level here. Why, why is it important to have a schedule? Okay, so I'll, I'll kind of give you the scientific answer first, yep. and then I'll give you the kind of the real life answer. Our brains... Um, if we're not using them fully, go to default mode network. It's a fancy way of saying there's a little area in the front of our brain called the uh, dorsal uh, medial frontal lobe, and then you're in the brat called the parietal lobe that'll just fire back and forth. Uh, we don't use much energy. It's a great energy saving system. The problem is this is when we do that, our brains go into wandering mode, hmm. which is usually negativity mode. And so we start feeling more negative or irritable or frustrated, um, which isn't so healthy. So a schedule, and it doesn't even have to be that complicated. Break your day in the morning, afternoon, and evening, and just do one constructive activity. I mean, COVID's been a good example of this because people, I'm telling you, it's amazing how people's emotionality has changed. Mm. But if you just say in the morning, 
you know, I'm going to read this chapter out of a book and journal this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to Google um, movies that overcome being lonely and I'll watch a movie tonight. I'm going to meet with my friend Sally uh, by FaceTime and see what's up. So you've got to keep your brain moving. Okay. Otherwise it's going to go back to old habit. It's just like, if you don't work out at the gym, your muscles get smaller. That's one. The other issues with scheduling is when you write it down, then you mean business. Mm -hmm. Okay. You write something down. You took the time and energy to mm -hmm. look a week ahead. It takes on a lot more credence mm -hmm. uh, because you put the time and energy to do it. Um, yeah. So that's my answer on scheduling. I mean, the sort of the short answer. I love that. I mean, I mean, we, we often don't hear about the, uh, the scientific parts. I mean, we think it's, it's really just to help us organize our day, but hearing the, the, the scientific um, answer and the impact it has on our brain, I think it's powerful. Now, the second point uh, you, you write about, uh, Dr. Faber, is to build a strong network of high-quality and sustainable relationships. I mean, I, 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 talk to us about that. Why is that important? Well, I mean, in part of it, we've been talking about that for the last, you know, 30 yeah, minutes. 30 minutes, yeah. You know, it's like when you have people that believe in you, it's powerful. Yeah. It's, it, and, and until you feel it and know it, it's hard to even explain. You've got to be around individuals who say, have you ever thought of doing this? Yeah. Have you ever thought of that? You know, you've got this call to your skill. Gosh, you got to think of doing this. Yeah. So it's not that hard, gang. It's really not that hard. It's just, you know, a lot of times doing it. Yeah. And then to develop a powerful, uh, resilient self-esteem. I think that's really where the, the rubber meets the road, right? So all these things are, are great, but if there is no desire, right? Um, that resiliency, I think that's really where it comes. Oh, we start and then we, we run into certain roadblocks or obstacles and oh, like, you know, we're done. Uh, but but what, why is that important? Resilience in the process. Well, resilience is, I mean, this is my definition of resilience. It's um, one, when you hit an obstacle, having a positive attitude. And two is you ain't giving up. Mm. You're not stopping. I don't care who you are in life. I don't care if you're the poorest person who lives on the streets to the wealthiest man in the world. You're going to have problems. Yeah. I, it, it's that's life. Yep. And so doesn't it make sense to have a bunch of skills to know how to deal with resilience? So when somebody says, you know, um, you know, you're never going to uh, fail or, or pass mathematics like these kids, you know, rather than starting to have the negative thoughts and giving up, you know, you come up and say, you know what? I'm going to show this person something. Yeah. Not only going to pass math, I'm going to go to MIT. Yeah. And when I'm done at MIT, I'm going to go back and show my graduation. Yeah. You know, um, I'll give you the case in point. Um, I wrote a paper in high school and, uh, you know, I grew up playing hockey in Minnesota. That's all another story. Some really cool stories, but I didn't have time to write one of these papers. My mom typed it and this teacher made a complete fool out of me in front of the whole class said I'd never become any kind of writer it made me look really stupid and my first thought is you know what you are going to eat every word you've just put in your mouth and you can be rest assured when escape was written guess who got a copy of the book mm. that English teacher mm. who told me I could never write but that's resilience it's like people say you can't do it well, you do it, and then you put it about five notches higher. But you got to have people that can help you. 
I, I love I love that you bring that personal uh, story into that there, right, Mr. Friend? It's like oftentimes, you know, we hear from, you know, the experts, you know, who come in, you know, and tell us all the all the great things that, that we need to. But hearing you walk through, and I'm going to dwell on that here for a little bit before we go to the last two. But uh, you talk about this, you know, for instance, like the teacher who told you you couldn't write. But uh, any other examples of personal struggles? If you, I'm sure this this yeah. plenty, oh. right? That that you had to overcome to bring you where you are today. I think it's important for, for our listeners to realize that these are all people who've been through, who've had life happen to them, right? But the ability to overcome them. Overcome it. I, I think, yeah, I think it's yeah. important. And it's scary. Well, when I was a junior in high school, um, I played football and ice hockey, and I, I hurt my back in, in football, and they thought I slipped a disc, um, and I couldn't play hockey that year at all. I had to go to the hospital. The doctors wanted to do surgery. They kept me in these like weights. And as soon as I heard surgery, I told my mom and dad, pack the bags. We're going home. We ain't doing surgery. Thank you very much. I don't know. And I was scared. Okay. And so um, I watched, I couldn't play hockey that year at all. And as far as I concerned, I couldn't play hockey schools. I mean, I was so get out of school early, go to college. But I watched one team and they had a couple kids who were like incredible players. And I said, you know what? I go, we can beat those guys next year. And I was like kind of an average player. I said, I know we can beat those guys. So I got really excited. So I started running, lifting weights, working out harder. Um, came time to try out for the team. Now in Minnesota, it's like you have 200 kids trying out for 20 spots on a high school team. I'm scared to death. I was hoping I'd at least get to do a couple shifts maybe on the varsity for the year. Well, long story short, I made the varsity team. And one of the coaches said to me, he says, you know, after about the second game, he says, you're like an all-conference hockey player. I'm thinking to myself, I am? Because really all I thought of is just to make every kid on that team better so we could go to the state high school tournament. And although we never made it to the high school tournament, I was like first team all-conference hockey player, which means not only did I get a reward, but I got a scholarship for college. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Who would have ever dreamed that? Um, and so that took it to a whole other level, but to make it even bigger, it's like the best story came five years later because in the, uh, five of the kids I grew up playing with, they played on another team and that was called the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Mm. Who, uh, <clears throat> you know, they won the gold medal against the Russians and it's, it's still pretty emotional because you can't believe you're playing against kids yeah. like that. Yeah. And Today, some 40 years later, when you see Disney still making movies mm. about that experience, and all I can do is go back and say, you know what, is if you've got a big enough dream mm. and enough resilience to fight, it's amazing mm. to see what you can do. Wow. And if we could somehow, what if schools taught, you know, besides reading, writing, arithmetic, what if they taught, what's your passion? And we're going to teach you resilience. Yeah. We're going to teach you. People say you can't do this. Your mom or dad might say you can't do this. Yeah. Your best friends say you can't do this. Yeah. You're going to walk on the streets and people say you can't do this. Yeah. And you're going to look in their eyes. You're not going to say a goddamn thing. But internally you say, yes. watch, wait, and see. Love it. And Love 15 it. years later, you'll have some good stories. Love it. Love it. Love it. The fourth point, staying sober. 
Yeah. So this is a, like for this country, you know, it's like we kind of kind of say that's oh, not that big of a deal. But alcohol and now marijuana, um, the THC in marijuana, I mean, I, the kids are all telling me not to plant. The government finally woke up. And I'm like, listen, if you look at the, the information on THC in your brain, it is not good. But here's the scoop is 85% of the people that are in the system, it's because of drugs and alcohol. Mm. So just from a common sense standpoint, it'd probably be a good, way, a good idea to stay away because if your reward systems, we don't know everything about a reward system, but more than likely people with substance use issues, it takes a lot more to make them happy. Mm. And that's a shortcut. So we just got to help you find other ways to, to get you happy too, is in terms of focus, memory, uh, being at your best, um, you can't do it. I mean, as a doctor, I mean, just give me a case here in point. I mean, I'm up at five in the morning reading, you know, and if I'm up till two in the morning, you know, hanging out with all the friends doing their stuff, it's mm-hmm. just like, you, you can't be at that peak yeah. level. Yeah. So yeah. you can find other ways to have fun because you still got to have fun. Yeah. You're just going to be creative about it. Absolutely. And the very last point here, which we've talked about, I, I guess, several times already to develop and grow how does that help for me oh my gosh i mean it, it, the thing that's amazing is um one you stay younger um that i can if you think about it kind of makes sense because when you learn, learn new information you take in new pieces of information um, all those neurons and axons have to make other connections to make it work and i don't know why i don't know how but physically, people, this is the opinion because they don't have any data to back it up, they tend to stay more vibrant and youthful. And you could I'll give a case with music. Um, I've got friends, and I'm not sure if this is true, but I grew up in the 70s, so you know, bands that were heavy rock, Led Zeppelin, uh, Jethro Tull, you know, the, the songs were like really cool and great. But the people who are still listening to the music, um, they haven't allowed their neurons to develop. So if you continue to kind of grow and develop, like one thing is, you know, hip hop or EDM music, I'm not saying you have to like it or agree with it all, but you help your brain continue to stay up with what's trendy and cultural and cool, whether it be in music or movies or arts or leadership or learning. Um, the more you can stay contemporary, um, the more youthful you're going to be. And plus you're going to like, you're going to enjoy life a whole lot more too. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you didn't, you didn't cover this um, spirituality, right? I mean, there, you know, spirituality, I'm, I'm a faith person and I find, you know, that to be, um, you know, very powerful for the mind, right? I mean, the Bible talks about it, you know, kind of thing you focus on. Is that any, any, does that, does it have any impact at all? If I ever have a, like I'm working on another book right now, but um, the spirituality piece and like secure attachment mm. with your creator mm. It's you won't forget it. If you have a secure attachment with a power that's way bigger than you, you won't forget it. I I guarantee you. Um, Again, this is what gets fascinating because there's people with insecure attachments and anxious attachments. And how does that all play into spirituality? Because it does. Um, And that's all I'm going to talk. But the more you can have that, I mean, 24 seven to have that kind of internal connection. Yeah with something far bigger and better than, yeah. than, than we are. It's, it's huge. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you touched on that because I know there are, you know, listeners who have that, you know, spiritual connection as well. But as we wrap this up here, uh, I want you to have that last word. It was probably, you know, someone listening um, or watching, depending on, you know, whether watching from who, who may be stuck, uh, who may have primed themselves stuck, um, whether it's a, it's a physical jail cell or a mental jail cell or whatever, you know, situation that it may be in. You know, maybe there's no one to trust. Maybe they've tried a couple of times, they've failed, and, and there's just, you know, there's that desire to move on. Um, any, any words of encouragement as we bring this to the close here that, you know, I know your book's going to be, we're going to have that title. Um, definitely go out there and check out Dr. Faber's book, Escape. But I believe as well, Escape is not only, um, you know, out of a physical jail cell, right? Even though that's really what the bulk of it is. But um, what would you say to that person right now, um, Dr. Faber? Um, I would say this is as long as you're willing to come up with an idea that's bigger than you and you're willing to learn about resilience, I think there's a lot of hope. And the resources, and believe it or not, the people are out there, you just have to look. So I'm going to encourage and implore that um, as negative as the world seems right now, see it as a challenge, look it square in the eye. Don't give up and let Fred and me look back 15, 20 years from now. You can look us up and say, you know what? Look at me now. Yeah. And I think we'll both be really excited for whoever you are out there. Wow. Dr. Faber, thank you so much for coming on the Time with Fred podcast and sharing uh, these powerful nuggets. And if you are then you're listening to this podcast or you're watching, check out the book, um, Escape, Rehab Your Brain to Stay Out of the Legal System, not only out of a it wasn't written just for ex-convicts, but these are powerful life lessons that we all can take advantage um, from. And if you go on Dr. Faber's website, it's going to be on the screen. You can download this book. I mean, he's giving this out there. It's not it's not a money-making thing. You can tell from his heart uh, that he's generally out, of, out there to help. So uh, definitely check it out. Dr. Faber, thank you so much for coming on the Time with Fred podcast. We really appreciate you um, and, and all you're doing to help humanity. Thank you for having me, Fred. It was a good hour. I appreciate it. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you.